starting a new series, and I want to share something with you. I one of my favorite series of books. Uh, I don't read a lot of non. I don't read a lot of fiction books um, because I'm reading so much other stuff that pertains to ministry that I don't have time to actually enjoy my reading. And so I read a lot of um, just nonfiction books, but I have read a lot of fiction books. In fact, when we go on trips, um, my wife will do one of two things. She'll either download an Audible book or she'll pick up a book and we'll re- she'll read it to me while I drive. And so that's how I get a lot of my reading in. Um, and so, but one of my favorite uh, series of books is The Lord of the Rings. Um, I've read it several times. I've read The Hobbit several times. Um, in fact, we went to a really long trip. We went all the way into Oregon a couple years back, and I just, I downloaded Audible, um, and I just listened to several of the books on Audible um, while the kids slept because it was a long trip. And so, no, actually, they were doing very good. Uh, they were asleep. Um, so, but in The Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you have ever read it, it's a very interesting book by a guy, and I'm not going to say his name right because you can pronounce it a couple different ways, but Tolkien, um, or Tolkien, however you want to say it. Um, so Tolkien, he made these books, it was supposed to be one book, but the publisher said no one's going to read one book this long, so they cut it up into three, but he also wrote The Hobbit. Um, he wrote this other book called The Similarian. I can't even say it right. It starts with an S. Um, That's the way it goes. Um, (laughs) But his uh, his family actually put together his notes as well and put those into books. And so I've read those as well. I just really like, one of the things I really like about books is they have to have a great world. Um, not just a good story, but a great world to be in. And when you go to the Lord of the Rings, if you just read that, there's so much world in there that other books help you understand. And if you understand um, Tolkien, you'll also understand his work. And so I've also listened to uh, whole lectures on Tolkien's work, just them going into the details and where he got a lot of his ideas, like the term hobbit. If you've ever heard the term hobbit, he coined that phrase. It was an old Gaelic word that he turned into. It had no previous understanding of what it was, and he took this word, and now what we refer to as hobbits are those little fuzzy-footed uh, things, the Frodo and, um, and Bilbo, all right? So, but he took something that was ancient and he used it. So, but if you understand Tolkien, you'll understand some of the things. So Hobbiton, um, the place where the hobbits are from, he, he based that off of the, the English hills. And so it's just interesting. And Mordor, who's kind of like the, this, the bad place, right? Um, those were taken off of the smokestacks in London like how the smoke was going up in London and all that, and so from the coal. And so just understanding more about who Tolkien is gives you a deeper appreciation for his writing and his faith, and um, he's a Christian, and a lot of those uh, things are brought into his writing. And so the more you know about the author, the deeper it goes. And so if you have your favorite author, you would know this. And you would know that there's things in their lives. Um, a perfect example of this is John Bunyan. 
that wrote Pilgrim's Pro uh, Progress, if you've ever read that. Um, well, did you know that J uh, John Bunyan also was a very staunch, at the time that he was living, you had to have a license to be able to preach the gospel. And he didn't have one. And so he was taken and thrown into prison because of that. And so a lot of his writings come out of being in this situation. And it's the same with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis loved ancient myths. He was a, an avid reader of, of classical uh, literature. And when I mean classical, I mean ancient Greek and Roman literature. And so he would read through those things as a kid, and that influenced his Chronicles of Narnia, in addition to his faith in Christ. And so understanding an author really brings out deeper understanding of what the, the writing is. And so we're starting our, uh, our summer series, and this year we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, now we're not actually going to open up to the Gospel of Matthew today, and there's a reason. This is an introduction to the whole thing, and we're going to be doing this for about two summers at the least, okay, going through Matthew. So this is going to be a long trek, and the reason why we're going to be at least two summers is because several years ago we did um, the Gospel of Mark, and it took us two summers to get through that. That was 16 chapters. Matthew is 28 chapters, so it might be two summers and another summer, okay? But the reason why is because we look at, in these summer series, we look at overarching understandings of the scriptures and how they connect with each other and how they connect into the Old Testament throughout the whole of scripture. And so we don't go through verse by verse through this, but rather we look at the whole and how it fits into several things. I'll give you an example. In Mark chapter 4, there are three, or, yeah, there are three no, sorry. There are four parables in that chapter. And if we look at just the parable on their own, which we did, you might miss that the, all four parables are all interconnected with each other. And so we looked at each as individuals, but then we looked at them as a whole. And so that's what we do in these summer series. So if you've never walked with us through one of these summer series, that's what to expect. Okay? But as we're getting into this, we want to understand the author that God used to write all this down. Okay? And when I use author, I'm talking about the human author and okay? not the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is the author. Okay? He's the one that um, is the divine inspirer of everything. But God uses certain people at certain times for certain purposes. And so he used Matthew for a reason. Have you ever thought, asked the question, why is there four Gospels? Why not just have one gospel, right? There's a purpose behind every single one of the gospels, okay? There's a purpose between why, why in the Old Testament, if, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, why is there First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? They're basically the same thing. They tell basically the same history, but there is purpose behind each one. And so... We need to understand that. We need to understand why. And so I want to start with who Matthew is, all right? And let's start with the author, okay? So this is from a guy named Eusebius. I'm going to give you a quote right here. This guy named Eusebius, he wrote in the, in the 300s, and his writing was called The Ecclesi Ecclesiastical History of the Church, 
Okay, so it's the ecclesiastical history, it's church history. And he wrote this, and he's quoting another guy named Origen, okay, another church father named Origen who lived in the second century. And this is what um, Eusebius says. He says, among the four Gospels, which are the only indisputable ones in the church of God under heaven, I have learned by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was once a publican, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it was prepared for the converts of Judaism. And so the first thing we need to understand is Matthew is the author of this gospel. Now that might seem like, oh, duh, right? It's called the gospel of Matthew. But the reality is, is Matthew never actually puts his name on it. In fact, none of the gospels are actually tell us who the author is. It takes tradition and it takes some going through the gospel to actually see who is the actual author. Now, there's a lot of scholarly stuff, and we're not going to get into that, but Matthew the Apostle is the perfect candidate for the Gospel of Matthew. It was written during his lifetime. It was, uh, he wrote it. One of the things that people will say is, Jesus' followers, they're just a bunch of country hicks, and they wouldn't know how to write in Greek. Well, Matthew, being a Roman official, right? He, he worked for the Romans as a tax collector. He would know how to write, and he would know how to write in Greek and in, in his native tongue of Aramaic and Hebrew. And so he would know how to do this. So not only is it written during his time, but he would know how to do it. He would have the, the actual skills to do it. And on top of that, he would be an eyewitness. A lot of stuff that we see in Matthew's gospel are eyewitness things. They're, unlike Luke, who Luke says, look, I went around and I talked to people and I put the gospel together. Matthew was an eyewitness. And so a lot of the interactions we see are eyewitness things. And so Matthew is the perfect author. And in fact, he is the accepted author today, even today. Okay? The next thing, though, is that we're going to talk about is the place. So Matthew, he writes this, and it's written about scholars. Now, I've read some scholars will say A.D. 85. Okay, that's when it was written. But the problem with that is that it's not. Because if it's Matthew as the writer, then we have to go back to Matthew's life, right? Now, Matthew is traditionally said to have died in Ethiopia at 60 AD. Okay, so at 60 AD is when he died. And so most scholars say, okay, it was written because of that, because in order for it to get out, it has to be written earlier. So it's between 50 and 55 AD is when most scholars will put it. Some scholars will put it even earlier than that. But we'll say about 50 to 55 AD, which lines up with a lot of other biblical accounts that are going on at that time. Now, you might be at this point saying, why are we doing all this? This is kind of dumb. Okay? At the end of this, I'm going to show you why all this is very important. All right? So stick with me. Don't fall asleep too fast. It's 11 o'clock. It's not the early service at 8 a.m., so you should be good. All right? All right, so we need to understand the time it was written because if it's later than 60, then Matthew can't be the author. Does that make sense? So it has to fit in there. And there's actually a lot of what we call textual things that are happening within the text that helps us understand it. One of the big things is 
when Jesus in Matthew 24, when we get to that in two years, okay, <laughs> when we get to that point, you'll forget this, but so I can tell you now, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. If it was written after 70 AD, there would have been, because the, all of the gospel writers do this, they all write in information so the person reading it can understand. And so they would have put in, and this was fulfilled. Or something along those lines, if it happened after AD 70, when in history we know the temple was destroyed. And so it has to be prior to AD 70 at the very minimum. But to be written by Matthew, it has to be before 60 AD. And that's a long way to go, right? From Israel down, or to, from Judea down into Ethiopia. So it has to be even earlier than 60 because it has to get out. So those are the two things. So we got our author, we got our time, right? Now let's talk about the place. Where was it written? And this is a, this is a huge thing here is that it's written to, most scholars say it's written in Antioch, okay? Now, if you read through the book of Acts, you might realize that Antioch is the kind of the second big church at this time. It goes Jerusalem and then Antioch are the two biggest churches at the beginning of the, of the Christian era, all right? And Antioch has some interesting things. So you start reading... Um, through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to really show how all this works together. Because as we read through Matthew, you're going to see the Jewish Jesus. All right? Because, one, Matthew is a Jew. And the things that were going around at the beginning of the church is really important. You have um, these... You have the Jerusalem church, which is all Jews, or mostly like 90% Jews. And then you have the Antioch church, which is the majority of a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. Okay, So when this happens, you have these Jews that were coming from Jerusalem to Antioch. And this is actually the basis of, of the first church council in Acts 15. These Jews were coming up, and they were telling the Gentiles, look, you accepted Christ, that's great. Now you need to follow all the Jewish customs. And so Matthew deals with the Jewishness of Jesus. But it goes through and brings Jesus and shows how Jesus, yes, he is the Jewish Messiah that was to come. But it's grace now. And it helps people move from Jewish tradition and the Jewish law to understand that now we're under grace. And that's how the, the basic flow of Matthew goes. And what's really interesting is Matthew really does put points on Jesus and the Old Testament. He really is the bridge between the two. Because there are things in Matthew, things like the, the emphasis on the law. So the Beatitudes, a lot of, uh, the, not the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the, on the Mount. Uh, people see that and they connect that with the Old Testament. And we will see how those two connect. But other things that happen. Matthew divides his whole gospel into five sermons, five major sermons, and then follows things within those sermons as connecting points. That is based on Deuteronomy, which Matthew heavily shows that Jesus quoted. 
in Deuteronomy, there are six discourses, there are six sermons by Moses. And so even by structuring, Matthew is showing, look, not only does Jesus, is he the Messiah, but he is the fulfillment of prophecy where Moses said, a prophet like me from your own brethren will come. And so Matthew really digs deep into this so the Jewish, under, the Jewish believers can understand this truly is the fulfillment. Jesus is truly the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And you need to understand that it is grace now by which we are saved. And so this whole thing. So it fits perfectly of why Matthew would write such a, a book. Why would God lead him to write such in such a way? All right? So are we good so far? We got the, the place, the author, the place, and the time. Right? We got those three. Okay? Now, why do we need to know all this background information? Why, why is that, right? Okay. Why do we need to know all this? Okay, so let's throw that next one up. The reason is, is because it's really easy to come to any part of the scripture. Oh, you don't have the back part? I'm sorry. Uh, it was someone's, someone else did that. That, was, that wasn't my fault. Uh, I'll just go really slow. So... Um, but the reason why we really need to understand all this background information is because it's really easy for us to take what the thoughts and the beliefs and the, the experiences and the social situations that we find ourselves in today in America in the 21st century and come to the Bible, open it up and say, okay, God, how's this affect me? In fact, um, some of you know I'm, go I'm going back to school right now to get my master's degree, okay? And if you don't know, now you do. Um, and so w I'm in this one class, and I hate it because, one, I've already done it. I've already read this. I've actually written stuff on this for the church. I've done curriculum on this. Um, they're called the spiritual disciplines. And so... I'm going through this class, and one thing that really annoys me, the, the main thing, is that none of them take seriously studying the Word of God. Like, to me, that is the foundation for everything else. But a lot of times, we don't do that either. We come to the Bible, and we just say, God, what's this have for me? Instead of stepping back and saying, okay, God, what did you write? What do you say here? Why did you, did you do this? Why did you, why did you use Matthew, right? Why Matthew? Because really, if we think about this, Matthew was a, and this is one of the reasons why I think Matthew actually doesn't put his name there. In fact, Matthew doesn't even tell about his conversion. He doesn't tell, give that story at all. Mark and Luke are the ones that talk about it. Two people, two other gospels that are more, Gentile focused, more non-Jewish focused than Matthew is. Why did Matthew write? And why didn't he put himself in there? Could it be because he was a Roman sympathizer at one point? And the Jews wouldn't like to hear that? And so he's like, I'm, I'll tell you that. He puts it in there, Matthew, the tax collector, but that's the only mention of it. Could it be because the Jews would not like that? And so he's like, you know what? They just need to know I did it. I did the job. But we don't need to push it. 
You know, why did, so why Matthew? That's the big thing. And so when we come to the Bible, the first thing we have to do is, God, take me out of this. What does your word say? And once I understand that, how does it apply? Application always comes after study. After we understand what God meant for it to say, then we can understand what it means for me. Because it's really easy to get off. And I want to give you an example of this, okay? I want to give you this example. Uh, I've been introduced to a person that calls himself a reverend um, and, a, and, a, and a preacher of God's word. Um, his name is Robertson. His name's Brandon Robertson. Robertson. Um, and he actually went viral a couple of weeks ago with his TikTok. And if you don't know what TikTok is, you don't need to know. It's dumb. Um, but he went viral because he said Jesus is a racist. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that. But instead, I want to bring you to something else that he preached two years ago. Okay. And we're going to walk through the actual verse here, and then we're going to talk about it, okay? So if you do have your Bibles, we're going to look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7, or 1 through 4, just real quick. We're just going to do this real quick, okay? So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat fruit from the tree that is not in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now I just want to stop right there just... It's interesting that God didn't say don't touch it. But Eve adds to that. That plays into what happens next. Okay? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, you will, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? So then she touches it. What happens? Nothing. Nothing happens when Eve touches the fruit. What happens when she eats it? Her eyes are open. That's the only thing. Did she die? No. no. Now, the common understanding of this passage, that idea of death there is it's not instantaneous death. It's spiritual death. It's separation from God. That has been the teaching. That's the Jewish teaching. In fact, I was just going through this. Um, listening to a Jewish rabbi just to make sure that this has been the teaching for years, and that is. He, in fact, they said, for us in Christians, we're at the same page at this point. That that understanding of death means a separation from God. That we are separated from God, therefore we are in death. Okay? Because of what we call, uh, what the Bible calls sin. That we're in death. Okay. Now, Robertson doesn't follow that idea. Instead, what he says is Eve didn't die. He didn't, she didn't instantaneously die. So guess what? The serpent was telling the truth. God was the liar. 
Now, the reason why he interprets it that way is because later on in that sermon, he takes truth and he says there are several things of truth. There's absolute truth there's, uh, and there is our personal truth. And he has to interpret that God lied here because he says Jesus changed his truth. This is progressive Christianity that we talked about a few months ago. But this idea that God changed, that God can be a liar and change, this is his basis for the idea that, God is, that Jesus was a racist and that Jesus had to repent of his racism. Okay? So the, be, the reason why is because he has certain 21st century beliefs that he brings to the Bible that he has to have to interpret the Bible the way he does. And so it's really important that we not do that. That we see what God has already done, and we say, okay, God, you spoke it, now change me. Because when Robinson says that God lies, that flies in the face of Scripture. So I'm going to give you two verses where that flies in the face of. Numbers 23.19 is the first one. Numbers uh, 23.19, this is what it says. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? To say God lied is to say that the other scriptures are false. So that's an Old Testament. Here's a New Testament one. Titus 1-2. Paul says this in Titus 1-2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God's promise is the basis of salvation. That in Genesis 3.15, where he's dealing out the, the punishments to Adam, Eve, and the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, there's hope that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's promise of God. And it's fulfilled in Christ. And so God's promise, His unchanging truth, His his being truthful is extremely important. But if we bring our 21st century ideas to the text, we can make it say whatever we want. And that's really bad. Because then it doesn't become the Word of God, it becomes our Word. And we become the gods. Exactly what Satan was trying to get Adam and Eve to do. And so it's really important because of this. So in Hebrews chapter 4, you might have heard this before, this is the purpose of the Word of God. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The purpose of God's word is not for me to come here and say, hey God, I just need some good information today. I just need a a, a pep talk. The purpose of the word of God is to come and to be drawn closer to God. To have me be divided from the sin of my life. It's so that I become more like Christ and less like the world. That's the purpose of the Word of God. And understanding 
why God used certain people at certain points in time to bring about that word is really important for us. Because then we're going back into that moment and saying, okay, God, what's it mean here? What's it mean for your original hearers? A perfect example of this is where Jesus, and I've used this time and time again in our apologetics class, and when Jesus is with Caiaphas at the Sanhedrin at night, when he is brought before that group to be crucified, where they're trying to find a reason to crucify him, Caiaphas says this, 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 asks this question, are you the Messiah? Jesus says the, this, these words, I am and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. Now, that sounds pretty cool, right? And most of us, would, our first thought would probably go to, okay, he's talking about when he comes back. But to the Jewish hearer at that moment, and most scholars think that at that moment, Jesus doesn't just, he's not just speaking in Aramaic, he's not speaking in Greek, he's speaking Hebrew and biblical Hebrew. He's going back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of, the, of one like the Son of Man coming in clouds. And when Jesus connects himself to that, you know what Caiaphas says? Blasphemy. And that the only time they use that word is when people are blaspheming the name of God. Breaking the first commandment. And the, the Ten Commandments. Taking the Lord's name. Making idols. Because Jesus just claimed to be God. By claiming that, by Him saying, I am the Son of Man that will come in glory. If you go back to that passage, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you read through that, that Son of Man gets the forever kingdom. He gets the eternal kingdom that the Ancient of Days gives to Him. And Jesus is saying, that's me. He's claiming Godhood at that point. And for Caiaphas, he knows exactly what's going on. But if we don't know that that's what Jesus is calling back to, we have just missed something deep there. That's why it's so important to understand what is going on in these passages? How does it actually connect? And why, why Matthew? Why Mark? We talked about Mark uh, several uh, years ago. And we talked about how Mark literally sets up his gospel to help us understand something. If you follow it, it goes from chapter 1 to chapter 8 to one question that Jesus asks. Who do you say I am? The first eight chapters are marked are supposed to be there to help us understand and answer that question of who do you say Jesus is? And once you're able to answer that question, the rest of the gospel makes sense. Because now the rest of the gospel takes Jesus to the cross. And that's how Mark sets up his gospel. With getting you to that question so you can get to the, cro to the cross. And every single one of the gospel writers, they help you understand Jesus in a different way. The multifaceted of who God is. Luke, he's writing, either he's writing to a person named Theophilus or he's writing to a group that he calls Theophilus. He, said, he purposely is telling them, I'm going to teach you about Jesus. 
and why he's the Messiah. And then you have to read both Luke and Acts to get the full picture. It's a two-volume book. And you have to read both of them to fully grasp what Luke's trying to get at. Here's Jesus, and he came and he died, and he sent his disciples out, and guess what? This is what they did, and now every believer is sent out. And then you get John, and John gives you his at the end. He says, I I wrote all this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Each one of the writers write for purpose, and we need to know that. So as we're getting into Matthew, next week we're going to be talking about the genealogies, and I know that is boring, because it's just like, I don't care who beget who. I don't care who birthed someone. I barely care about my own family. You know, I know my parents. I, I only like the good ones in my tree, right? But the genealogy is very important for, God, for Matthew and for him to start off. And so as we're walking through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, we need to realize this because that will keep us from bringing our beliefs are things to the word of God and allow God's word to really cut deep into us, to really divide us from the world and bring us closer to Christ. And so my my challenge for you this week is actually to go to the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke and actually read through Matthew's conversion. I want you to get to know Matthew. Think about one of the things I was I was just listening to someone and they just, just they were it was a passing statement that they did, and I just thought it was one of the, the most profound things I had ever heard about Matthew. There's a guy named Matthew in the Bible, right? And he is the tax collector. He is the Roman sympathizer. There's also a guy in the Bible who's also an apostle, also called by Jesus to be in his inner circle, who's called a zealot. You know what that means? Jesus called the collaborator and he called the guy that wanted to overthrow the, Bible, overthrow the Roman government. And he said, both of you come to me. That Just that, that Jesus would do such a thing, says there's no one Jesus isn't after. Um, a few years ago, I was listening to a... Um, uh, a, a serviceman, he was giving his testimony. Uh, so, if you don't know, in Iraq, one of the um, churches that was established there was a, a Christian and Missionary Alliance church, one of our churches. Um, as soon as Iraq was opened up for people to come in, the CMA, the Alliance, we sent funds and we sent missionaries to, to help open this up. And they had to, from this guy's, the soldier's testimony, um, they had to put up these barricades and things so people couldn't bomb it and everything. But he was talking about, and I, this is just off of his testimony. He was talking about how he was in this battle. And he was shooting, you know, insurgents or whatever they were at the time. And after that battle, he was able to go and they were doing something. And he just happened to pass by this church. And he met a Christian that was there. And they were talking. He was an interpreter. Uh, he, could, he had basic understanding of Arabic. 
and they they were having this conversation and he's like oh oh you you were at this place this battle he goes yeah i was one of the um the guards or whatever they were i got these military people in the back back there and they're like this guy's an idiot um and so he's in the he's saying so they're having this conversation basically they were on opposite sides shooting at each other they were able to pinpoint these things and the guy says uh, the Iraqi says through that I accepted Christ and this so from the soldier he's saying that this guy was my enemy and now he's my brother this is the importance of Matthew. That he was estranged from God and brought in, just like the zealot was estranged from God and brought in. This is why it's so important to know who God brought in. So we can understand his word a little bit better. And this gives comfort to me because here's this guy far from God. And Jesus, not only does God say, come to me, but he says, I'm going to have you write my story. No matter where we are in life, God can use us. If we are brought to Him, what great things has He planned for us? Moses was called at 80. Joshua was called at 80. David was called at 16 or 13, depending on you know, how you look at it. God can use people today, just like he used people back then. I'm not saying you're going to write scripture. That's all I'm saying. Okay? But God can use, and when we have an appreciation of who God used, that deepens our understanding of his word. And so this week, I just want to challenge you to get to know uh, Matthew a little bit more. Okay? And those, those are two sections. Mark chapter, um, chapter 2 up there, and then Luke chapter 5. Right? Just get to know Matthew. So when we come back here next week, you're ready to dive into the book of Matthew. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for all that you do for us. You do constant things. And Lord, I thank you that you brought Matthew to yourself. That you had already known him before the foundations of the world. That you had known him and you knew that, he was, that you were going to use him to write this aspect of the life of Jesus. And so, Father, I thank you that you use a man such as Matthew because, because you use men like him and women like him that you can use people like us. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. And Lord, help us this week to, to dive into your word and to try as best we can by the power of your Holy Spirit to separate ourselves from your word in the sense that we don't put our ideas onto it. Lord, speak clearly to us by your word because that's what we need. We need the word to separate us from the world. We need it to cut deep into us. So Father, I pray for your people. I pray for myself that we would be on fire for your word. That it would cleanse us from, our, from things that we think that are what we need to hold on to that we get rid of that. So, Father, I thank you that you're moving so mightily through your word. I praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.